Yeah, it's all of that. You know, it is those sorts of things, what we're seeing, working with space, how we understand that imagery. So if we look at, you know, a rectangle with part of its part of its blurry, is it necessarily a rectangle? And, you know, if you use a strict definition, no. But we understand it as such, and we're able to determine that it is based on the visual information that we're given. And that is, that's a parallel to, you know, the things that I've talked about, being a queer person of color. It's a parallel to those sorts of experiences that I've had, where I'm read in a specific way, or where I read myself in a specific way, and what is the correct way, what is the right way, and is there a right way? Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 231st episode, I'm super excited to be joined by Loring Teoka, who I spoke with from Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he currently is making all kinds of great work, and we're going to talk all about that. What's really exciting about this work is, aside from a variety of different processes that include airbrush and vinyl cutting and stencil use and even some hand painting in some recent work, is the way that it's influenced by Loring's background, his interests in movies, games, his identity as a queer artist of color. And we talk all about the way that that finds its way into the work. And, of course, we talk about that in great length and detail. So please stay tuned for all of those wonderful details. And while there's plenty of images to scroll through on studiobreak.com, be sure and check out Loring's website at loringteoka.com. And, of course, follow his Instagram account, Loring Teoka. If you happen to be in Dallas, you can also check out his work as part of a group exhibition, a summer collective at Gallery Urbane in Dallas. So check that out if you can. And there'll be a link posted on Studio Break to the gallery. Just a quick reminder, too, I was just alluding to the online gallery on studiobreak.com that's part of this interview, so be sure and check out studiobreak.com. Again, we've got various slideshows of previous guests, each with images of their artwork, links to their websites for more information. You can, of course, listen to the interview right in the default player or click those links, subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play so you can listen where you like. And, of course, you can find us on social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and, of course, on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. And with those quick announcements out of the way, let's dive right into this interview with Loring Teoka. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Loring Teoka. How are you this morning? I'm well. How are you? Excellent. You know, we're all coffeeed up. We were just talking about that a little while ago, or at least maybe I didn't confess. I'm going to be nice and jittery for this one. Um, <laughs> Me too. You know, we were t- we were talking a little bit too about maybe your background, and obviously we're going to dive into. Uh, but I always like to know where people are are currently at. So so where are you residing right now? And we can kind of go from there. Yeah, I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So it's in Northwest Arkansas. Okay. It's a small city. Yeah, I live and work there. And what do you what do you do there? So I run Advanced Technology Lab for the School of Art at the University of Arkansas. So I take care of like fancy printers, flatbed plotter cutter, die sublimation printers, a lot of just 2D advanced technologies that the students can use. Interesting. And I'm imagining that there's some way that this ties into some of the things that you do with your paintings cuz you know they're aside from super colorful and and a lot of hardish abstraction it seems like I don't know when you're when you're looking at them like oh there's got to be some maybe technological influence in here so we'll see maybe if if I'm kind of right or half right definitely or, <laughs> definitely uh, right well right on well um so 
tell us a little bit about your background in terms of like where you're from. Are you originally from Arkansas or are you kind of moved from somewhere? Or? Yeah, so I'm originally from, I say I'm from New Hampshire, but I grew up in upstate New York, Oneonta, New York. I moved to New Hampshire when I was 10. And when I went to college, I moved to Toledo. And then I moved sort of all around the country since then and wound up in Arkansas. Okay. And did you have a lot of interest in, in the arts kind of, you know, coming up uh, when you were a little kid? Yes, that was, you know, I think that's sort of like a, across the board for a lot of artists is I've been doing it forever. My mother, I consider her a master of 2D and my father is a genius at 3D. My mother's a master quilter, a seamstress. My dad is a dentist and he sort of understands 3D or the third dimension in a way that I have a hard time understanding. But I grew up with them and them really encouraging me to do those sorts of things. So I was involved in the arts from a very young age, really, really young. Like I, I learned how to sew by my mother when I was three while she was sewing a wedding dress. Oh, right. Interesting. Yes. I've always been involved in it. And I imagine, you know, drawing the, the Stussy symbol, um, you know, the three parallel lines and three parallel lines and then crossing them over and, and stuff like that. For some reason, I can imagine like filling up a trapper keeper. If, if you, oh. uh, if you know what I'm talking about, maybe those are coveted uh, eBay items now, but you know, I just think of all the like little designs that I remember drawing growing up and, and, curious if um you know it was kind of more geared towards just drawing or painting or just kind of everything it maybe sounds it like. was it was really everything i think it was a lot to keep me busy while she was home and then i sort of found like solitude in it i have three older sisters my house was like really loud growing up we're a really loud family and this sort of allowed me to be by myself and sort of uh be content with being by myself and i found relief in that you know mini studio so it was really Anything I could get my hands on, I loved. I just loved doing it. It was, it came natural to me. It's something that I've always done. Well, it's interesting that you say that too. It makes me think about maybe a tendency for artists to kind of be able to pass boredom or, you know, kind of almost want that isolation and and find something to do with it. You know, like if you're, I don't know, stuck outside and there's just grass, you're going to like tear it or something to, mm -hmm. to find some sort of way to kind of explore that creativity as opposed to like, um, I don't know, let's go find a basketball or something, you know? Yeah. And you know, this was pre-internet waiting by the phone for a phone call time. So it was like, uh, yeah, it was just, it was something for me to do. It was sort of, I think it really helped me find my voice and sort of figure out who I was at a really young age. Well, and is that something that your parents then kind of like encourage you to explore in, in terms of like a career or kind of like as you're getting into high school, like, or are they, you know, wondering why are you, why are you doing all this design stuff or, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. You know, I think, um, both of my parents are super supportive and really encouraging. I think it was harder for my father and his side of the family to see it as like a, uh, a quote unquote real career or like a, a real pursuit, um, and I think part of that was, you know, he grew up a classically trained pianist and he saw that it was really difficult to make a living doing that. So I think that he and his sister and my grandparents, my aunt and my grandparents didn't want me to have to struggle in that way. Mm -hmm. But they still supported me and they still encouraged me. My mother, on the other hand, and that side of the family was all for it. You know, they really loved it. They really wanted me to do it. So I did it in spite or despite of my what what the adults in my life wanted me to do. But they've always been really supportive. My dad came out for one of my solo shows. My mom came out for my MFA exhibition. And yeah, they're, they're, right now they're all for it. They love that I do it. Awesome. Awesome. And I'm curious then too, like in, in a high school time, was there like a dream in mind? Because, 
you know, now it's interesting because a lot of my students are interested in animation. They want to do animation. And for me, it was like, uh, you know, we had somebody, and I probably said this before, but we had somebody that came in, a teacher knew a student that worked for Industrial Light and Magic that came in and <laughs> talked to us. And we we're like, wow, you work for George Lucas or something. <laughs> but um, was there anything that you were kind of like aiming for or you just kind of didn't know or? Yeah, you know, I just, I loved just being involved in the arts, to be honest. I wanted to be a DJ when I was in high school. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a painter. I went to raves a lot. My high school art teacher was super encouraging. I just, I loved doing it. And at that point in my life, I was super involved in graffiti. And I think that comes across in my work now, that sort of like same aesthetic voice. So really, I just, I just found a home in the arts and I just wanted to do something in it, whether that was music or whether that was visual arts. It's just really anything. And and then I, you know, settled down and started pursuing visual arts, but I was open to whatever I still am. I love it all. Well, so what did you do in terms of your, you know, seeking that out in college? Did you have a particular program or a place that you kind of looked at or what did you do for for that? You know, I was in a different mindset going to college. When I entered, I was a business major. Mm-hmm. And I would say maybe like uh, eight weeks into the semester, <laughs> whatever. I was like, I cannot do this. <laughs> This is not for me. So I switched to a liberal arts degree, which really let me pursue a lot of different things in undergrad. There was no specific one thing that I had to be set on. So I focused on art, uh, Spanish, and women's gender studies were the big things that I sort of left undergrad with and were super formative to to what I do now. And where did you study? Uh, I went to undergrad at the University of Toledo in Ohio. Okay. And so you kind of talked before about, you know, kind of being interested in all these, you know, different types of art making. Mm -hmm. What were you doing there? Kind of things uh, got exciting in terms of studying art. Yeah. um, You know, I, I think back to my intro 2D and 3D foundations courses as being sort of like the most formative. And I think it was because of the professors that I had, they were super encouraging they showed me that I could do this as a living, that I could pursue it, and that it's like a, it's a, it's a fulfilling career path. So I really credit them with me doing what I am, what I'm doing now. And then I just, I just did whatever I wanted to do. I took mainly metalsmithing and jewelry classes, but I was never particularly interested in a material or a process. I've always been more focused on the idea behind the work and what informs it and sort of what motivates me or what motivates another artist to make the work. And that's something that I try to convey to students when I meet with them now is that, you know, what is the most appropriate way to communicate your idea? What is the best way to do this? Is this a proper channel? So I've never really felt tied to a specific media, despite what classes I've ever taken. And how did you wind up, you know, leaving, you know, that pursuit, if you don't mind me asking, because again, it probably something that, you know, if somebody were to, to see your work now and, you know, learn that you started out as a metalsmith, they kind of mm-hmm. be surprised a little bit in, in, in that regards. I never really adhered to like specific conventions of what metalsmithing should be. So when I went to graduate school, I rarely did things that would be like considered traditional. I was more interested in, again, the idea behind the work. So I did drawings, I did video, I did installation, sculpture, really anything to find how I wanted to communicate. I think that was a little difficult for some of my professors in graduate school that I wasn't adhering to like specific notions of traditionalism, I guess, but it allowed me to sort of like find my voice and figure out who I was and my point of view. And I really credit 
graduate school as being this catalyst for that. You know, I trust myself. I know myself. I know my work better than anyone else. And I think I found that in that program. It sounds like then that in graduate school, it was really like when you kind of really, you know, tightened up and and, and figured out exactly the kind of things that you maybe wanted to explore, at least kind of, you know, brought that into a narrower focus, which is, which Mm -hmm. is pretty normal. But, you know, I'm especially kind of curious just to think about even just like maybe the work that you applied to get in with, was it kind of like you were just describing, you know, a variety of different things, like you're a mixed media artist kind of applying? It was really tightly curated, made within a really short period of time. I wanted my portfolio to have a focus. But I have since wiped the internet of that work because it's so bad. It is just like absolute trash. But, you know, it's I'm okay with it. But it was like really tightly curated because I wanted to get into a specific program. But it, it I don't think that's representative of what I do now or who I am. Sure. I think it was a means to an end. It was a way for me to get where I wanted to go. Well, and it's always interesting, too, because as I talk to a lot of artists, you know, they explain something kind of similar, you know, they'll be like, oh, I, you know, went into this figurative painting thing for a number of years, and now I don't do figurative painting at all, or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious then, too, so like, you know, you're starting graduate school, were there any artists that were, you know, particularly... I guess, important to, you know, you described a little bit about that informally, you know, the, the way Uh that you like to research and kind of study and how you had a lot of opportunities to do that in undergraduate, who are some of the artists that you kind of were drawn to or, or kind of, you know, looking at, and by the way, the, the artist that I wrote down when I was looking at your work earlier at some point was Kenneth Nolan, just because there's kind of like (laughs) these really kind of blurry uh, aspects and then, you know, tight, uh, hard edge kind of geometric aspects to some of your more uh, recent work. Yeah, I love Kenneth Noland. Great. I love it. I'm into it. I think for me, the number one has always been Dan Flavin. He's mm-hmm. always been sort of my go-to. It was the first work I fell in love with. It moves me now. There was something about doing so much with so little that really, it like spoke to me conceptually, it spoke to me aesthetically, it really spoke to who I am. Mm-hmm. So Dan Flavin is, I hold him dear forever and ever. Kara Walker was a huge, huge inspiration for me. And Tara Donovan. And then there are other people that have since taken over. Taba Auerbach is my number one. I love her. Her work is great. Liz Deshen, Sarah Oppenheimer, and Hamilton, Agnes Martin. Those are all real my, my top artists. I just I go gaga over those people. Awesome. Interesting. You know, and again, obviously with, with Flavin, you know, there's certainly a colorful aspect that I can Mm -hmm. easily see kind of being brought over. And I guess to kind of go back again to, to what you were just talking about then. So you're in graduate school, you know, everybody's, um, you know, smacking you down and telling you not to make this work anymore. <laughs> you know, what kind of things were you doing? Because I would imagine, again, like, you know, describing that kind of research side of it or just kind of being mm-hmm. willing to kind of pursue anything, I would imagine you had a lot of things that you were trying out, especially just having such a, a wide range of artists that you're interested in. I think back to my thesis show, it's the first body of work that I'm proud of. And they're small scale sculptures. They're sort of like John Chamberlain-esque. They're small, crushed painted completely white, hung in an installation, sort of equidistant around the gallery wall. And it was sort of like this experiential thing, but there were these objects, small-scale sculptures. I don't know if that actually answered your question. I think it kind of does. <laughs> yeah, so like super minimal, um, really interested in experience and how I can make a viewer experience something that I've experienced before, how I can sort of distort our notions of space and what we're looking at and sort of how we question what we see. And that's still super important to what I do now. I 
I think that I find that work so important is because of that, because that has stuck with me for now 10 years. Yeah. Well, and it occurs to me that thinking about it that way, you know, the way that you just described this 3D work is very similar to the things that I think about when I see your 2D work, you know, in terms of that interaction, when you start staring and, you know, staring long enough at a painting where you start seeing an after image and you start thinking about that interaction mm-hmm. aspect of it the same way that you might, you know, with something being installed in a in a space and the way that you might walk around it or experience it. Yeah, I sort of think about, you know, how can I give someone contradictory information? How can I show them an image? How do they understand that image? How do they think about what it is? How do they reconcile an image that might have those contradictory elements to it. So is it a square? Is it not a square? What makes it that thing? And those are all sort of tied to my experience as as a queer person of color and the way that I negotiate space and the way that I negotiate power dynamics, the way that I walk through a room and sort of like these intersectional aspects of my existence. Um, And so what I'm trying to do with my work or what I've always tried to do with my work is create a similar experience where you're not really sure what you're looking at, but there's, you know, there's evident image that's like a thing that you can see but how do i sort of subvert that notion again it's it's always interesting to think about how our relationship to the work kind of matches expectations for mm-hmm. people that are going to see it you know because sometimes it really matters that they get certain things and maybe other things aren't as i guess maybe obvious or mm-hmm. yep. you know it's 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 interesting because there's always kind of like a interesting relationship when we even think about the viewer a lot of times i've talked to artists that you know you know that's their primary primary thing that they're talking about is trying to communicate something and then there's other times where people honestly i feel like it's an afterthought you know like oh yeah some Mm -hmm. people like this (laughs) you know yeah you know it's a i want to make things this work is for me and it's sort of my way to process my experiences and how i sort of move through the world and if a viewer gets that awesome i love it but also at the same time i don't expect the viewer to necessarily get the things that I'm talking about, and that's okay. But I think that the audience is smart enough to understand these things. I think that the audience is, I trust my audience. I trust the people who look at my work to figure it out and decode it and sort of work with it. You kind of described afterwards maybe moving around a little bit still, where you kind of looking for jobs and trying to figure out what to what to do after this. I'm always curious what happens to people after graduate school, because it seems like there are <laughs> like these idealistic <laughs> dreams or like, oh, I'm going to wind up doing this or that. And then, you know, another opportunity pops up and then, you know, it takes you in a totally different direction. Mm-hmm. So after graduate school, I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, where my partner was finishing graduate school. They went to school at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved up there because it was super cheap and I didn't have a lot of money. And it was a good place for us to sort of hang out for a few months. We moved to Pittsburgh, in August of that year, August of 2011. And in November, I got a job at FIT in New York City as a studio tech. So I moved to New York City and lived there for a year and a half. And then my partner was a sabbatical replacement in Syracuse. They moved to Penland, North Carolina to work at Penland School of Craft. I moved down there. Then they got a tenure check job here at the University of Arkansas. So we, within I think maybe like five years of finishing school, I had lived in, I don't know, like 10 different places. (laughs) That's got to be pretty awesome too, just to think about, you know, starting over. I I kind of, again, went nowhere fast, I feel like in some regards, but I did get like a number of residencies. So it was kind of fun, you know, traveling and then kind of being in new places to kind of, I guess, kind of shake something loose a little bit, or at least kind of make me think about my work in a different way. I would imagine that's something that if you're always moving studios or projects, you're adapting to a lot of different types of ways of making work. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, that was something that I never really thought affected what I do, the place that I'm living. But being in Arkansas and having a lot of space has certainly changed how I'm able to make work and the way that I approach my work. And I think back to living in New York City, where I had no studio space, I worked primarily on the roof of my apartment. And I worked with reflective mylar because I could roll it up and store it in my closet. So, you know, it, it was predicated on or what I was making was based on the space that I had available. You know, I, th- I think that goes back to like figuring it out, goes back to what we were talking about earlier is like a way of problem solving through something. I don't see it as like an issue. So if I move to Arkansas, I can try something different. That's well, that's why I think it's so interesting now, you know, like in terms mm-hmm. of solving those problems, like I, you know, have a you know, phone that's literally mounted onto a piece of cardboard that's <laughs> that's rubber banded to a tripod handle. But I found it's a very great way to kind of be able to set up a you know video recording for demo work because I can raise and lower it very easily, you know. And yeah. it sounds really silly, but it's just like, wow, this is a good solution. And there's a weird thing that I think artists do when they're kind of, you know, set up with these uh you know, it might be like, oh, my gosh, I just have to work with, uh, you know, paper or something instead of what I want to work with. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, though, especially like given that you, you know, currently are somebody that runs a technology lab and all these various processes. Is that something that you kind of picked up along the way, too, at these various jobs in terms of like, OK, because I can go back and remember when we you know, got a large format printer in graduate school, it was like, oh, my gosh, this thing's amazing. But I would imagine as you're kind of working in these other labs and you know, maybe different opportunities, you're learning uh, about new skills, new technologies and ways of working as well? Yeah, you know, um, and that has, this has been a big part of my work right now. We have a 36 by 47 flatbed vinyl cutter. So I make a lot of my vinyl stencils and that's how I make my work. But that's been something that I always do is if there's a new process or new technique that someone knows and they're willing to teach me or I can pay them to show me, I will learn it. I will pick up whatever I can. I will learn as much as I can because that's how I got these jobs. You know, that's how I became a tech in New York City. That's how I got this tech job is I just learn as much as I can. I just pick things up because I never know when they're going to come through, you know, when they're going to come out in my work or when they're going to come through and how they might help me. So if there's something I can learn, I will learn it. If there's something that I can, you know, figure out new piece of equipment, I will do it. And that, you know, relates back to everything that I do. It's, It's the same thing as living in New York City and making work out of reflective mylar. It's just based on like, what I have at the time. And if, if there's something there, I'm going to figure it out. I, I don't put um, limitations on what I'm able to do. I just, I just go for it. Cause I see sort of see like, what's the worst that could happen. I, I mess up and then it's like, okay, well then I relearn it. I just figure it out. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where that sort of attitude came from, but I'll, I'll just do it. I'll just learn how to do it. You know, it's these things are technical skills. It's an awesome attitude to have. One of the things that I always kind of share with students at some point in the semester is these uh, wonderful art memes that are uh, exploration of like the creative process. And it's like, you know, this is awesome. This is tricky. This is shit. I am shit. This might be okay. (laughs) This is awesome. You know, like I think that everybody kind of goes through some semblance of that you know and maybe maybe it's a little bit too of just kind of having such a a foundation in those maybe technical processes it sounds like again you're kind of always more interested in what the outcome was and you know that was maybe what was driving it but having a technical background in all these different processes i'm sure kind of maybe give you some comfort in thinking okay no i can i can resolve this if this doesn't work a different way yeah and it's i think i all it's not i think but i always give myself new challenges i always push myself 
to try new things. Right now I'm working on some work that is just like, it's taken me a month to figure out how to even start it just because it's like, it's super technical. But I, I want it to be like that. I don't ever want to stop learning something. I don't want my work to stop growing. So that's something that I, I continually push myself. I continually make my work harder in hopes of, you know, making a better piece, making a better painting or making a better sculpture or having something that feels better to me than the last piece. I never want the next piece that I make to be worse than the last piece. I always want it to be be better. I always want to do better. And I think I always can. I think that's that's part of being in the arts is that I push myself and that I challenge myself and I challenge my peers and my peers challenge me to do better and, and be better at it and sort of problem solve my way around that. So to dive into kind of more recent work, and again, this mm-hmm. is all stuff that hasn't been scrubbed uh, from the internet. So <laughs> it's stuff that you probably like, uh-huh. you know, it's interesting though, obviously to, to see, you know, your most recent work, especially it's so colorful. So going back, you know, into maybe some slightly older work on your site, you know, we've got a whole series of these, um, you know, grayscale paintings. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, I don't necessarily want to talk about every Every single entire uh, variation of these, but I want to definitely break some of these down so that yeah, you know, people can think about some processes. So, and I would imagine some of these carry over into more recent work too, but maybe just start out by just explaining that process a little bit. I'm curious, like, are these all like then designed in some way digitally before they're explored as a, a physical manifestation? That sounds so great to say, <laughs> but is that kind of like the process or is it something else? Yeah. Yeah, so I work primarily in Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator, sometimes Photoshop, and rarely Google SketchUp, but I basically design, design everything in Illustrator. And when I was first starting out, I would design and then I would use masking tape to make these shapes and paint gradients, which goes back to my history as a graffiti artist using an airbrush. But paint these gradients or paint these colors to get a completely flat surface. And then it sort of evolved as I became familiar with vinyl cutting. And I learned how to use a small scale vinyl cutter. And then I learned how to use a big vinyl cutter. And these pieces that you're looking at are all basically like really fancy puzzle pieces. I like to joke around that they're paint by numbers. They're all created in vinyl. I place it on whatever substrate and then I paint according to the colors that I have denoted. So any painting or any piece that you look at has between 25 and 100 iterations and I just sort of work through incremental steps of like figuring out the right colors or the right shapes or the right pattern and the way that colors interact or the way the shapes interact and I just work back and forth until I get something that feels good or something that communicates in the way that I want it to and then I use a vinyl cutter and I cut it out same thing that's used on like exhibition walls for lettering for all those sorts of like industry standard sign making. Well, and to think about that body of work specifically from, you know, 2017, one of the things that's interesting to me too is there's like these very subtle kind of, you know, gradient shifts that you're kind of just describing. Those are those are done with airbrush? Yeah, so if we're looking at the black paintings, those are airbrushed, gloss black, and matte black. Okay. So it's all black. It's just a matter of, um, yeah, if it's glossy or matte, that gives it the gradient. And so obviously you're interested in kind of playing around with, you know, the way that these shapes kind of interact or, you know... Uh, maybe parts of them pop out or contrast from other areas just because there's some contrast, you know, in terms of light and darkness and, mm-hmm. you know, various shapes and things like that. So is it something where you kind of will then like set a goal for that? Like this is going to this is going to be just like monochrome, black and white kind of paintings. And then I'm going to jump to, you know, plexiglass or is it like a small kind of exploration? And then if you're really into it, you keep going 
before you jump on to something else or yeah i think that's a i think that's a really good way to put it is you know i'll, I'll be working on these things and then i'll i'll need a quote-unquote studio break so i'll make a different kind of work and sort of like clear my brain and then revisit and sometimes that stuff sticks and sometimes it doesn't so they all do start out as small explorations and then when it sort of speaks to me when i think it's doing something then i pursue that and it can sort of push that in a way that feels good and in a way that Again, I say this a lot, but like communicates my ideas and does something that I want it to do, does something interesting visually and conceptually. Well, and I guess before I get too far along, too, everybody should check out loringteoka.com to see all these paintings that, you know, again, if you're getting distracted listening to this, you can always uh, do that <laughs> and just stop <laughs> what you're working on. Um, but one of the things that's interesting, too, is like I was just describing, you know, you know the, the next series kind of jumps uh, towards plexiglass and then we start also kind of introducing these maybe kind of limited colors, um, but you start seeing these maybe overlapping shapes and, and they start interacting in different ways. And I would imagine, again, that's just the kind of thing that you need to see in your work that you're like, oh, how could I, how could I push this into a new direction? So I use or I have employed geometry as sort of like this ubiquitous thing that everyone can understand. You know, if I show you a circle, you can identify it as a circle. I show a child a circle, they can identify it as a circle. So it serves as this sort of base level knowledge system. And then I work to see how I can undo how those things are defined. So while you might see a circle in some parts of the painting and another part, you'll see like a U shape. And how do we understand that? Is it a circle? Is it not a circle? So I use geometry in that way. And I started introducing color as I became more confident with the visual language that I was developing. I wanted to start at sort of like a foundational level with just working black and white and then put color in as I could. And as I, saw, as I saw fit and how that sort of changed the imagery and see how I could get it to change the imagery. Well, I'm going to kind of test your memory, too, in terms of titles. Uh, again, oh, we've God. got a lot of untitled work, but there's, you know, one of the first ones that kind of pop out to me to, to that series, you know, relative to that is Untitled Circle Overlapping an Extruded Biarc. Is, uh -huh. is that correct? Yep. But it's interesting because, you know, there starts to be those real, you know, 3D geometric areas of, of the, the shapes that you're painting. And this one kind of almost kind of looks like a, a weird, like kind of almost like paper clippy type shape. So, again, I don't mm -hmm. want to uh, offend you if uh, oh, <laughs> that's offensive offend language. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting because then you start introducing these, you know, gradient flats that completely dismiss that 3D aspect of it. So you've got that kind of interaction maybe like you did in, in the previous series in terms of some of the ways that the shapes are interacting. So again, it's just, it's just really interesting to see some of these different uh, configurations of that. Yeah, with that piece in particular, I was that's when I got really comfortable with rendering the imagery on the plexiglass and I wanted to make it look, I wanted to create a, a three-dimensional object that floated on a wall but was a, a two-dimensional surface and sort of how the viewer, how we negotiate that imagery. How do we come to terms with something that we know is flat, but it's has a, it looks three-dimensional and it's casting a shadow. You know, the plexiglass was super important to that work. It allowed the image to do something different than the, the, the black images couldn't do, you know, those sort of black paintings could do. It floated on the wall. It interacted with the space differently. It took on light differently. It, it interrogated the viewer. When you walked by these, you saw, you literally saw yourself in the painting. But the three-dimensional aspect was a, a a really big part for me, figuring that out and sort of working with how I could distort that in the way that I was distorting the the sort of basic geometry that I was working with. I was going to say it'd be really interesting to see these in a space and see them lit because I would imagine there's going to be some, you know, color that kind of almost glows off the wall too if they're kind of lit mm -hmm. in the right way as well. 
Yeah, and then, you know, I, we go a little bit further, and then I actually started cutting into the surfaces of the plexiglass. So there are, are large portions of the plexiglass that are moved, removed, and they work with the actual painting itself. So they, you know, I was calling into question, like, the substrate, the materiality, the how we understand a surface when it, it technically becomes, I guess, like a 3D surface. And then that interacts with light in a different way. You know, having a an etched line or a cut line into plexiglass is going to pick up light in a different way. It's going to cast shadows in a different way. And then that completely changed my work working into the actual surface of the material. Well, and it looks like, and I could be wrong, is that maybe kind of the series that maybe is kind of in between there. Cause there's another like series of black paintings where you can really see what looks like, you know, really etched shapes into, into that surface. Those are actually plexiglass. Those are um, laser cut plexiglass that I glued together. So they are dimensional. It's just completely plexiglass. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, it's like I said, for me, I, this is the, the, the tiny stuff that I love getting into just cause I, you know, you start looking at something, you know, and you want to figure out how it's made. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think almost there's, there's still something to that idea too, for me, like when I figure out some, how something's made, it kind of becomes like, Oh, you know, so having like a sense of wonder in there is also something that's kind of really interesting. But I'm I'm curious then. So obviously, like you know, if people you know check out that that work that we were just talking about, there's all sorts of variations with those maybe uh, you know grayscale forms, and then you know introducing color combinations with gradients and other shapes overlapping. You know, we're talking about all these. You know, the way that they shift and change as you're moving around them. What was the change that you were just describing? Was it the series that comes after that? Yeah. So um, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about too. Is I was taking a break from making those paintings and I had some black black plexiglass sheets and I said, well, why don't I laser cut these, try to do something similar? So I worked with those for a little bit and then I revisited the paintings and then I was able to introduce laser cutting into the work itself. So everything is sort of like building upon itself and it, it, it informs the next thing that comes. So I worked with those plexiglass or the black plexiglass pieces and then I was able to do introduce that into the actual painting. And how did that kind of affect it? You know, because again, it's it's maybe harder to see, you know, in terms of, you know, seeing it represented online versus I'm sure what it looks like in person. So mm-hmm. like maybe describe some of how that changed in terms of the process, because like, I don't know if it's like literally then like you've got a couple of layers of plexi that are stacked or are you literally just like cutting out chunks of it so that it interacts differently? Yeah. So I'm, I'm physically removing like a chunk of plexiglass in Yes, it reads very differently in person. So you're, you know, when you have the plexiglass, it acts as sort of a barrier and you're seeing through the plexiglass. You're seeing the plexiglass and seeing through it. And what would happen to the image if I removed portions of it? So you have the same idea, the same act of looking, but you're actually looking at the gallery wall instead of the painting. You're actually looking at the space that you're in instead of the painting itself, but it still serves the painting in a similar way. I think it it disrupts the imagery. It also allowed me to add physical shadows in the imagery, which I was only able to do with paint. I was only able to have implied shadows. So it really changed the dimension of the work. And a lot of that stuff is super subtle on purpose because I want it to be sort of something that you discover as you work with. But it really was an investigation in like the substrate itself, the materiality. How can I change? How can I add something subtle to the work to change the imagery in a dramatic way? And maybe kind of a random question here, but too, Mm -hmm. like when you think about, you know, people working in the studio a lot of times are, you know, going to work and then kind of have something to to kind of look at uh, to kind of see how it's working. I would imagine that that's 
also part of the process in terms of trying to determine what's working with these and not, you know, is to mm-hmm. have a couple in process. You're sitting in your chair kind of, <laughs> you know, mulling <laughs> over like what's working and what isn't working. But I'm, I'm curious then too, like, like I'm sure that's part of the process. Like maybe you were just uh, hinting at, but like, are you working on a bunch of these then at the same time? And then, you know, when some don't work out, you just have to snap them in half or something. I don't know. That's a way that I work. I think through making work. So I make a lot of work. My work lends itself to that. It's relatively simple in process. They're not simple to make, but they're simple in process, simple in theory. So I'm able to make a lot at once. So I have just like a backlog of paintings in my studio right now, just a hundred paintings that have gone nowhere. (laughs) But it's, I'm fine with that. I think through making a sort of problem solve as I'm doing these things, I am happiest when I'm making work. I feel most fulfilled when I'm doing these things. So if I can do something a lot, I'm going to. So if I can make a lot of work, I'm going to. Um, and again, it's it's that thing. It's like I need to process process my experiences. I need to process my world, and this is how I do it. Well, and I'm I'm curious. We talked a little bit about the design process, you know, in terms of you know working on Illustrator. But I'm curious too, like if there's other you know stimuli that kind of lead you towards colors, because I immediately start thinking of like candy wrappers and these weird. Mm-hmm almost like candy-like shapes because there's a lot of color that's kind of more pastel. But then I also think about, oddly enough, like, you know, funky, like, like 70s rock albums or something mm-hmm. like that, or, you know, the kind of color schemes that you would have. And maybe that's because there's so many, like, gradients or, you know, I years ago saw a, it was like a poster exhibition from, like, the 70s. 60s and 70s and you know like all of these silk screening techniques and and stuff like that and the colors are just like kind of ridiculous so i'm especially curious like is that something that kind of comes into play in terms of like trying to visualize what they what they kind of like look like in your head or are you kind of reacting to you know just working them out you know like digitally or where do the color combinations you know kind of move towards or at least from i guess yeah so i have a lot of different inspirations for like where i pick colors from They initially started from just my everyday surroundings. So I looked a lot at like cars. I looked a lot at sunsets. That was like a really big thing for me for a minute and just seeing those sorts of colors. But then I started thinking, you know, I'm, I'm pulling from the rest of my life. So why can't I do that with these colors? So I, my most recent exhibition, I pulled from Romy and Michelle's high school reunion or anti-mame, or I play a lot of video games. So I pull a lot of colors from those trapper keepers. The thing that I've been looking for the most right now in my life are my old rave flyers from the early two thousands, because I know these colors are in there. I know that they're embedded somewhere in there. And what I want the colors to do is I want to challenge myself. I want to challenge the viewer. I want it to be something that they work with. So maybe it's like a nice combination or maybe it's a really jarring combination. What does that do for the work? How does it inform the work? How do we understand what we're looking at when we have this chartreuse with like this fluorescent dark pink salmon on top of it? What does it do to the imagery versus having two blues? But really anything in my life, video games are a huge thing. I love video games. I play them all the time. TV is a big thing. So, I mean, I love Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. So I picked some colors from some of the dresses they were wearing and put that in my work. Same with Auntie Mame. Pick some colors from that movie and sort of put them in there and see how I could work with them, see how I could get them to do the things that I wanted them to do. Well, it's interesting, too, because I, I don't know why that, like, when I see some of these, I start thinking nostalgically about something. Mm-hmm. And they're very approachable, I guess, is maybe a good way of saying it. It's not something that 
it's going to be so jarring that that you kind of want to walk away from it. You know, they seem very inviting. And I would imagine, you know, seeing them in a, in a, a group also kind of like extends that idea. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is really interesting in terms of the compositions is that, you know, when we started kind of, you know, looking at some of these slightly older works, you know, it's mostly focused on these these shapes. And then you start kind of, you know, playing with these different processes and they start to become like, you know, these fragments or maybe like zoomed in on parts of trapper keepers or various designs or something like that. And so that starts to become kind of interesting too, because they almost kind of remind me of like what they would have as like a virtual, you know, digital landscape, um, you know, for like headsets, like back in the nineties or something like that, you know, like they start to kind of have like these planes that they're sitting in, but then there's these fragmented shapes of colors. And I'm curious, is there like a, is that just like a device to kind of explore like a new, you know, formal exploration of these, or is that something that is kind of also kind of guided by, you know, your interest changing? Yeah, I think it's guided by my interest changing. You know, I had these images sit directly in the center of the the painting, and then I started to move them off the surface. And then I sort of started thinking about patterning and how patterns play both like visually, but as, you know, like how we learn as like an act of uh, a pattern, a repeated pattern, we pick up certain things. So I wanted to work with the imagery in that way and see how, you know, if I take the shape and I move it off of the edge of the plexiglass and repeat it on the other side, are we able to finish, quote unquote, finish that image in our head? Are we able to determine what it is or what it was or what it could be? I started taking these, these Im- this imagery apart and placing it diff- different places on the canvas or different places on the plexiglass and looking at it in that way and seeing what our expectations were and how we finished the image and how we understood what we're seeing well, the image is a static thing. It's not changing. It's not like we're being presented with new information all the time. And maybe we are if you move around it or whatever, but it's, it's a static It's a static thing. And I wanted to work with that. I wanted to sort of subvert our notions. I wanted to see how that changed what we're looking at or how I understood what we're looking at. Well, and I love the way that the color keeps kind of shifting too, because there's one that I don't believe there's a title for, but it kind of incorporates a nice, you know, complimentary you know, set up of these violets and, and yellows, but they also kind of move towards yellow greens and yellow orange. And then they're mm-hmm. transitioning from that violet. That's maybe a little bit darker to one that's more like a red violet that gets a little bit lighter. So it's interesting to see, especially like how these color shifts start to kind of mess around with that, you know, with areas that start to kind of want to pop out or kind of recede. Mm-hmm. So again, it's interesting to think about how the formal aspects of it keep changing as well too, in very subtle ways. Yeah. And you know, the gradient was, was a big thing for me and I get that it's like a thing right now or whatever but it really served me conceptually because I wanted to say like you know you have a yellow to pink gradient at what point does the yellow become pink or what point does the pink become yellow you know there are infinite number of colors between those two and it really for me froze that transitional point it really froze that experience of existing between identities existing between these polar opposites or what is deemed as polar opposites. So while I love a gradient, I will, you know, I I, I love a gradient. I'll go for a gradient any day. It really was primarily a conceptual thing that I wanted to put into the work. Well, and again, that's interesting to think about, you know, in, in terms of trying to, what we were talking about earlier is to, you know, communicate something and, you know, where that lies in relationship to the viewer and you know it kind of keeps getting pushed you know i would imagine then in that that series that comes afterwards which is you know a series of paintings that kind of go back well i guess not that far but they're kind of more of these 
solid kind of object like things, but then they get distorted where there's like one side that looks very clear and in focus. And then part mm-hmm. that looks, looks distorted. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe talk about these a little bit. Cause these, these ones especially are the ones that when I started looking at, there's one, I'll just jump right to it. Cause my eyes started kind of, kind of changing <laughs> dramatically when I was looking at it, but there's one called untitled Two blurry, uh, stadia stadia. Yeah. Let me see if I can find that one. I'm looking at my list right now. Yeah. Uh, it's the pink with blue on top, right? Yeah. I mean, again, when you start looking at it, you start, you know, seeing this vibrant color, but then you start seeing almost after images of different colors as you're kind of like moving away from that focus of the center. This piece was really important for that show, which was last year, I think at this point, I don't really remember, maybe this year, that piece was really important for the show that I was making. It has these two blurry shapes, but one is sort of pushed back in space by the same shape that it is. So it's pushed back in space by the outline of a stadia. So I had a stencil that I put on, I airbrushed that portion of the stadium and then I airbrushed that same thing on top of it after I took the stencil off. So it created a, a different kind of depth within the imagery. And then you have this really, really intense pink and this really nice light blue. And how does that affect what you're seeing when you stare at it for a long time? You know, it sort of makes my eyes vibrate. It, it's hard for me to look at. And I think that's what I was, that's what I was going with going for with that piece. There's a lot of a lot of them that have that kind of division where there's something that's clear and in focus versus something that isn't. There's another mm-hmm. one called uh, Blurry Square number two, which does it really successfully. But I guess, especially with that one, I'm kind of curious, you know, relative to this process, maybe you describe it because I, I have a hard time um, trying to describe what I'm saying, but maybe kind of talk a little about that idea of layering in the work because it wouldn't be necessarily apparent to somebody that isn't making it, you know, how many layers it takes to get that effect. Yeah, so if we're looking at the blurry square number two, it's sort of like that reddish brown with the blue on top. And I would paint, you know, the the surface brown, and then I would put a stencil on top, a a vinyl stencil on the right-hand side, and then I would have the same stencil cut out on cardboard, and I'd place that an inch off the surface. So when I painted through that shape, it gave that blurry effect on the side where there was no masking, and on the other side, it filled in that hard edge right side of the square. So that's a that's two layers on that painting but the you know i have other work that is has more layers to it it just de- it's just dependent on the process necessary to get there but these are all sort of the same sort of process it's vinyl stencil and a cardboard stencil and then i just sort of configure them in different ways to get different visual effects are there any ones from that series that you particularly like you know there are, i'm sure you like all of them by the way but <laughs> You know, there, there's there's three. There's sort of like this mint on top of orange. There are two rectangles. There's really nice maroony red on top of a peach. And then there's the chartreuse with like the fluorescent red on top. And I think that one, blurry rectangle number two, that's probably my favorite one out of the grouping. I think that it does something really interesting. It's a nice balance of hard and soft. It's like tart it's hard to look at my friend described it as violently queer which i'm super into you know these this imagery is like it's it's simple but it's i think it does a lot and that's what you know that's why i love dan Flavin. i want i want to be able to do something along those lines or i wanted to be able to do something along those lines with this work so yeah those top three of that series are probably my favorite and i think there's you know i i like the idea we talked a little bit about color earlier but i like the idea of like you know what's a what's a good a good color for a painting. What's a gross colored painting? You know, what can I do to make something that might not be super aesthetically pleasing? And what does that mean? You know, working with quote unquote ugly colors. And I think that's what I wanted to do with the 
the blue and orange. I wanted to make something that was hard to look at. I wanted to make something that was, you know, might not necessarily go together and see how I could get it to do that. You know, see how I could make an image that did work well, even if those colors are really jarring. But, you know, there's parts of them that are really in focus and then there are parts that kind of look blurry. So there's parts that look recessed and then there's parts that sit on the surface. And I'm just thinking about it relative to some of the things that we've talked about relating to the viewer or, you know, maybe even playing around with this idea of uh, things not being what they seem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's all of that. You know, it is those sorts of things, what we're seeing, working with space, how we understand that imagery. So if we look at, you know, a rectangle with part of its part of its blurry, is it necessarily a rectangle? And, you know, if you use a strict definition, no, but we understand it as such. And we're able to determine that it is based on the visual information that we're given. And that is, that's a parallel to, you know, the things that I've talked about being a queer person of color. It's a parallel to those sorts of experiences that I've had where I'm read in a specific way or where I read myself in a specific way. And what is the correct way? What is the right way? And is there a right way? Well, and it makes me think about like the times, you know, that we're in, you know, as weird as they are, I do think that there are obviously uh, times that were much worse (laughs) previously, but you know, like there's not, I don't think that there's anything that's as defined, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Everything is a little bit more open and hopefully requires more understanding and, you know, people being reflective on things as opposed to kind of having, you know, one shot, you know, this is the way that it is, you know, whereas like somebody might you know, look at this work and have a totally different take on it. I think that's an interesting idea about it. Yeah, you know, and I think I think that's a great thing. It's, I'm always critical of myself. I'm always critical of my actions. And I think that, especially right now, that's an important thing to be doing mm-hmm. to sort of investigate those things and investigate why we feel the way we feel and why we think the way they think. And that has always been a, a part of what I do. It's investigating who I am and what I think. And again, like reflecting my experiences and did I do something the right way or did I handle something the right way or what's the best solution? What's the better way to do this? And continually pushing my work and continually pushing myself to be a better version of what I am. No, I think that's great. And I guess before we kind of slowly approach, you know, the end of this, I want to definitely talk about kind of the most recent works, which Mm -hmm. again, these are all gouache on paper. Yeah. Yep. And so is there anything, you know, different in terms of the approach to these? They look way more complicated in terms of lab- <laughs> laborious work, which you can, again, you can let me know. <laughs> before we were quarantined, before we were in a pandemic or as we were getting into a pandemic, I met with one of my friends, Randy Young, and she was working with gouache. And I said, hey, show me how to use this. I've never used it before. So she showed me, gave me a quick tutorial. I was like, cool. I love it. I love how it looks. I love how it feels, which is not a me thing to do be really interested in like how it feels when the the gouache comes off of the brush but i i love it i loved what it did and then being isolated i didn't have access to materials i didn't have access to a vinyl cutter i couldn't do the things that i wanted to do i couldn't make panels so i went with gouache and i pursued it and i just started working with it these pattern pieces i had initially made maybe a year and a half ago in preparation for a show And I just sort of pushed them away right before the show and did something different. So I've had these on the back burner for a long time now. And this was a perfect time to do it. I had time at night and time on the weekends. I wasn't going anywhere. So I just gave it a shot and I, you know, figured it out and I am pushing the work. And now that I've done it, it's, I love it. I love working with it. And then even these sorts of pattern ideas are working their way back into my panel paintings. I've been sort of problem solved the thing I was talking about earlier 
taking a month to figure out as I finally figured out how to do get the same effect on these panels in a really crisp way that is reflective of the gouache painting. So this work was made because I didn't have a lot of resources to make any other work. I didn't have my traditional studio setting. So I figured out something different and figured out a different approach. And I'm super into it. I love it. I think they're doing different things. I think they're talking about the same things in a very different way. It was just one of those things. It's like, yeah, I couldn't make work the traditional way. So I'm going to figure out a different way to make work. There's one called uh, Overlapping Rounded Square Pattern. Mm-hmm. And I like the space in these especially too, because there's just little things that you start kind of noticing like this, these kind of blue pattern that's kind of what what you would imagine would be just kind of printed over the whole thing. But then you can see that there are other shapes that they're kind of tucked behind. Mm-hmm. So again, it's just, it's, it really kind of changes the space a little bit in, in a different way, you know? And I think that's something that, you know, has been very consistent, you know, looking over all of the work is that that's something that, you know, keeps coming, coming into, uh, you know, the forefront or at least part of it, what you're, you're exploring formally. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was, again, like, you know, I have those sort of like pivotal moments in my studio practice. And this was a breakthrough moment for me with with these paintings. I really felt that it did something that the other work wasn't doing. And I'm trying to incorporate that now into what I'm working on in the studio. But I was, I'm really proud of that painting. I think it's a good painting. But yeah, engaging with space, engaging with what that means, how we negotiate space. And that's a, a really broad thing. But I think I'm able to talk about it in in painting itself and have that carry over into, you know, every day. So the way that I negotiate space in this image, how does it parallel to the way that I negotiate space when I go to work or when I go to the store, when I, you know, do X, Y, and Z when I travel. Um, So it is, yeah, it's reflective of those things. And I was glad that I was able to get that across in the work or feel like I got it across in the work. Yeah. And again, really playful in terms of color. You know, I, as I was looking at this other one overlapping by arc pattern, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not pronouncing anything right today. Yeah, that's right. That's Um, correct. (laughs) Okay. Um, But I immediately started thinking of the prices right for some reason, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I I went back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of kind of, kind of pulling from everything that you see. But I think that, that aspect of it is kind of interesting. Like I said, you know, all, all along is that it kind of really invites viewers and people looking at them to kind of, you know, think about, you know, where these might be from or, you know, how they're based off of. And again, I think that's something that's really strong about the work and, and something that's really inviting, you know, there's you. a real, real um, sense of kind of wanting to sit with these. So, and I'm sure when then you, you know, have these all uh, installed, you can <laughs> spend lots of time, you know, looking at them because you, you know, we so often kind of rarely get to see everything, you know, on the wall installed somewhere, you know, as opposed to like, from a couple feet away in the studio and you're like, oh, is this working out or not, you know? Yeah, and that was, you know, with with these pieces in particular, because they are hand-painted, so they lose the sort of crispness that I had in the other work. But that was also part of it. I wanted to, that's something that I'm not super comfortable with, having the hand be present. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly care for it. If I could have my work look like it was made from a computer, that's ideal. (laughs) (laughs) But that was another part of making these gouache paintings is I wanted to loosen up. I wanted to not be so rigid and I wanted to not set the expectation so high in hopes that I was able to figure out something differently or, or figure out something different. And I think that I did with this work, it has the same sort of tightness, but when you examine it close up, when you examine it in person, you can see that these images aren't perfect. They're not painted perfectly. There are pencil marks. There are, there are things that aren't present when you see it on the computer, but that was part of it. It was, it was an intentional act of like trying to loosen myself up because I am a pretty strict, rigid person. 
when it comes to this stuff. I do like hard lines. You know, you you said Trapper Keeper earlier, and I love Trapper Keeper. <laughs> you know, not to be on that sort of like eighties, nineties nostalgic kick, but you know, I grew up. I grew up then. These are I'm, I'm mining my past. I'm mining the visual culture of my past. I'm mining these things that were important to me. Same thing with rave posters. Same thing with Romeo and Michelle's history reunion. You know, sort of picking from my life, pricking from the things that affect me or have had an effect on me. Well, and it makes me think too, like back to, you know, we were talking about limitations of studios and, you know, having to do like vinyl cutting on roofs. Um, (laughs) You know, again, I would imagine there's something that's going to become interesting or playful about that hand hand painted quality of it without all that perfection. Even, even again, if it's something that's kind of scary, like I was talking to you before about like how weird it is to work through the process of like drawing a self portrait, you know, I've done so little of them so that when I did one for, you know, the spring semester as a demo, I was really excited about the fact that like, Oh no, if I sit down and work through this, it can, it can be resolved, you know? So it'll be interesting to think about, you know, even if that's just, you know, the way that apply it and maybe a very small way for you, the way that it shows up in your work and and future stuff coming up. Yeah. I think the, the sort of last thing that I wanted to say about this work is it was, or it has been like a really good way for me to have some sense of control Mm -hmm. when things feel like a, a shit show, when they feel like sort of out of control and overwhelming is that I'm able to exert some control over these paintings. I'm able to sit down and like really focus for a couple hours and have some like sense of stability with everything with my life. And I think that comes into play. It's like that, you know, I can have some sense of control. I can have some sense of tightness, but the hand is still there. It's still in there. It still informs the work. It still shows that like this wasn't made by a computer. It is a person, even if there was some highly curated, super tight. I think that's a great way of thinking about it, you know? Um, especially like given our, our strange circumstances. Um, I was going to ask you too, obviously before we kind of wrap and everything, um, you know, are there things that you're kind of working towards? I know that like times are especially kind of strange now uh, in terms of exhibitions, uh, you know, cause mm-hmm. things are locking back down, but do you have, do you have things kind of coming up that you're working toward for the future? You know, I, I don't have anything set at the moment, but I I'm coming off of the tail end of three shows in 18 months. So I'm, using this time right now to explore my ideas and try new things and really push my work in a different way and explore my ideas more fully and do more research and really dedicate my time to my studio practice. And it's it's been really freeing to not have a show coming up as much as I want to show someone give me a show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But it's like, you know, I think working for a year and a half straight, just finishing a show and then going to another show well, it's great and I love it and I did a lot of different things and I really pushed myself. This is allowing me to explore a little bit more freely without having a specific expectation of 15 paintings or a specific expectation of whatever. Mm-hmm. So this has been really freeing for me. It's been super important. I haven't had a moment like this in a long time. So I'm really basking in not having a specific deadline for work. Where's the best place to check out your work? I'm assuming Instagram is probably always updated with new stuff. Yep. So I always update Instagram, Loring Teoka, my website, Loring Teoka. You can Google me. It's uh, boring with an L. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that's the best way to stay up with me. I update my Instagram with everything that I'm doing. I love Instagram. I think it's a really great tool for artists. It allows people to connect. But nothing hard, le- no hard deadlines right now. Just keep your eyes out for what I'm doing. I think I'm I'm happy with my work right now, so I hope you look at it. Yeah, well, it's a great place to be, really, you know, 
is mm-hmm. is to not have that pressure. You know, it's interesting when you talk to artists that are, you know, kind of like they're um, in production mode, you know, unending, and they don't have any time to kind of work through that. So I, I think that's something interesting to talk to you about your work is that you're always kind of like having these little shifts and and very you know, open and kind of discussing those little shifts, which is something that was really interesting to talk to you about your work. So again, thanks so, so much for participating and really appreciated uh, talking to you today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate talking with you. Thanks so much again to Loring for joining me. It was a blast talking to you about your work. Go and visit loringteoka.com. Follow Loring on Instagram at loringteoka. And check out his work through Gallery Urbane. Again, he's part of a summer collective show there. And you can also find out more about upcoming solo exhibitions as well. Once again, that's Gallery Urbane in Dallas if you want to see more work in person especially. If you just heard your first Studio Break podcast, I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you want to check out more, visit studiobreak.com. Again, as I talked about earlier, we have a bunch of archived interviews that you can go through. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their website, so you can find out more information. You can, of course, listen right there on studiobreak.com or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. So you can find us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So be sure and subscribe there. Leave a review if you like it. That's always appreciated. And, of course, you can easily easily say hello on social media so be sure and like our facebook page you can follow us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram be sure and say hello at studio underscore break let me take a second to thank skylar mail who provides the music to studio break you can check out his work at skylarmail.net and of course if you want to see some of my paintings davidlinaway.com is your best bet there's plenty of work up there to check out if you're always curious of what is it that i do or maybe you haven't done it before or anything like that it's davidlinaway.com and you can of course find me on facebook or on instagram at davidlinaway and with those announcements we are wrapped i really hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as i did i hope that everyone is out there staying safe and productive in their studios and doing well making amazing work and we'll talk to you real soon